Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with author and journalist Rick Morton to talk about his book, My Year of Living Vulnerably. Thanks for joining us, Rick. Thank you for having me, Joel. That's a very calming voice you've got on at the moment. I find it's, it very it's my podcast voice. Yeah, I like it. I can't maintain it for very long, so <laughs> enjoy it while Likewise. it's here. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> so tell us about this this book, how it came about. Yeah, this is a, look, it's another one of those moments in my life where I thought I need to write about something so that I can understand it in my own world. Um, I was um, having a bit of a time of it in 2019 and still processing some stuff about kind of what I thought was mental illness or depression and anxiety in my own life. And I went to this writer's festival and was listening to a writer read out a page from her book about trauma. And the description matched what happened to me like perfectly. And I had one of the, I remember it clear as day and I just remember going, oh my God, I need to see a specialist. And I I went to see this guy in in Canberra. It was like middle, well, May 2019, because it was just before the federal election. And within half an hour, he's like, oh, yeah, that's complex PTSD, um, which I'd never heard of before, ever, in my life, um, across all these years. And yet it matched um, and, and mapped onto my life so specifically that I was just kind of, I went down this rabbit hole, I guess, of finding out what it was. And it kind of uh, enlivened me to the idea that I needed to make some more change in my life about you know, what this early trauma was and how I might deal with it and things that I'd already had in train over the last, you know, six or seven years, but that probably needed a little bit more effort. And that's kind of where this book came from because, you know, in short, complex PTSD is about a lack of love um, in your early childhood years, like emotional abuse or neglect, or even just, you know, not getting the right amount of love from a primary caregiver that you might ordinarily expect. And so really I thought, well, maybe the answer is more love, (laughs) not less. And that's kind of where this weird brainchild of a book came from. And I went on a little mission, which is my want sometimes. Yeah. And so, so is that where the title came from? The well, my Year of Living? Or, I mean, it's a great title. Yeah. I, I love it. <laughs> Did it come from straight away? or No. What? I mean, so I, funnily enough, it was in my head. I don't have a lot of – I don't have a system with book titles. And the, my first one, 100 Years of Dirt, was a joke, um, which I love. Um, mm. But this one I'd actually said in a, a Facebook conversation um, with a really good friend of mine, Mitchell Bingerman, um, and because I just finished reading The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut. And I was in a bit of a kind of sensitive place, I guess. And so I was just kind of talking to him and I'm like, I think what I need to do is kind of embark on this little project is, you know, and I jokingly called it my year of living vulnerably. And that was in 2017, I think, from memory. Um, It was a couple of years before this book and it was just stuck in the back of my head when I actually got this diagnosis and all of these threads of things that I'd already been thinking about kind of started to come together and um, it kind of crystallised into, into this project. Yeah, because the, it, it creates a sort of spine for the structure of the book, which is very much explorations into different aspects of, I guess, what we would call vulnerability, though that's a, that's a very loose it's way of... It's a broad of, church. Yeah, it's a broad <laughs> church. Um, and it's, it means that it sort of holds together because it's your journey through that. Um, did it, you? How did you... Stru- structure that did you I mean you obviously didn't write it chronologically from yeah. beginning to end because there are parts of it that are clearly set after other parts <laughs> 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 and I as someone who worked in publishing I know how sometimes these things come together quite yes. quite late how did it how did it how did it all come together well I mean yeah so I mean look the the, the full story is that really this book was an excuse for me to write what I have been telling my friends and family is the ultimate Rick Morton book. Like I'm just a huge nerd basically and I have spent 
most of my life trying to figure myself out, but also the world around me, and I, and I do that through words and language. And so I wanted to write about these big themes like love and beauty and vulnerability and masculinity and touch. Um, and I realised as I was thinking about this and the kind of things that had led me to where I was in my life and what I might need to do to get better, um, it all crossed over into all of these different themes. And so I split the book up into chapters by kind of subject very loosely, um, which is a, a great way for me to work as well because it gives me confines. I'm not very good when I'm allowed to roam totally free. That's um, a kid from a cattle station. <laughs> um, never, always got into trouble when we were allowed to roam totally free. Um, but then while I was writing, you know, so I pitched this book to HarperCollins and they, they bought it and then – and that was in late 2019 – and then this stupid coronavirus pandemic happens. <laughs> and I, halfway through this, you know, us being in lockdown, I'm like, I don't want to write about it. I don't want to write about it. I don't want to write about it. And then I'm like, I have to write about it. Um, not throughout the entire book, but, you know, the, the, there's a whole it's chapter so on touch. It's so clearly related. Yes, there's yeah. a whole chapter on touch, which I was, uh, I'd pitched before we ever knew this thing existed. And then all of a sudden, we can't touch anyone. And I'm like, well, um, that's annoying. Um, and also the very thing that I'm writing about. And then also, you know, I had another kind of one of these episodes of trauma at the end of 2020 while I'm still writing this damn thing. And, and then, you know, in January when I'm doing the edits, um, uh, kind of a Mr. Tumnus-style character storms the Capitol <laughs> in America. Um, and putting it quite generously. <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, he is a white supremacist. Um, and, but it was just so surreal. And, I'm, and immediately I'm like, this is this kind of broken idea of masculinity that has led that and racism, um, and the two things actually work very well together um, to kind of uh, energise this movement. And so I, I went back to the masculinity chapter and, and wrote um, a whole bunch of stuff in there because I was still thinking about stuff and processing it. And so it's, it becomes a kind of a melange, I guess, of yeah. all these different ideas. Hard to end that book, writing it. Well, yes, and I don't want to end it. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep asking for revisions up until... You know, 2042, maybe? <laughs> yeah, there was just, there was so much in it that I just, and I just loved the idea. I, I could not write this book, but I certainly loved the idea of being able to research some of the stuff that you, yeah. octopuses and consciousness, I, and you just got to play. I got to That's play. A, I mean, <laughs> it I, was, it's a wonderful read. And like I spent, you know, literally I've spent the last decade listening to podcast interviews with, you know, quantum physicists and um, philosophers of consciousness, um, neuroscientists, um, animal biologists, um, anthropologists about Neanderthals and I'm reading Kindred at the moment, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. And so this is already kind of where my natural interest takes me and it's how I put the world together. Um, but now I got to do it for work and I got to do it at the same time as trialling all these things and, and not just, you know, things like neurofeedback, which is a kind of a medical style kind of Frankenstein experiment thing on my brain, but also... Um, trialing new patterns of thought <clears throat> and interrogating things that I thought I knew um, or reminding myself of things that I definitely needed to be reminded of, which is, you know, kindness um, and, and beautiful things in the world because, you know, when you're awake to them, um, life is great and when you're not, it's very easy to forget that you ever thought these things at all. And so, you know, I just got to go on this big mission and it really was a paradise for me, like getting to just get stuck into all of these really big themes. And I kind of thought, I'm like, why me? Like, why do I, like, I, I felt like I might get laughed at for even daring to write about this stuff. Because usually, you know, it's the realm of philosophy or high thinking scientists. But then I'm also like, I wasn't any of those people when I was 20 and started getting interested in this stuff. I'm like, why shouldn't more people, you know, have access to it? 
and why not me? Like, if I don't write it, I'm sure mm. someone else will. I don't think there's a... I, I absolutely... You do not approach it or sell yourself as an expert. No. And, or, <laughs> and in that sense, there's, there's a component of this book that you could take away as personal development, yes. self-help. Yes. But it's not... You know, you say very clearly in the book that it's not self-help. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I, do, I definitely don't see it that way. And you certainly... Look I, at me. <laughs> I, I think a lot of self-help books say that. Yeah, I don't <laughs> believe in absolutism and, and, and like just sheer unending confidence. Um, maybe because I've never felt it <laughs> um, and therefore I don't believe it. But also I just, yeah, I don't trust, I don't trust those people who think they know everything. Um, and, in, you know, to be real undergraduate about it, Socrates himself said, you know, the wise man knows that he knows nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of, it's the figuring things out that I think is important and the curiosity, um, not your level of knowledge. Um, and obviously you need to be aware that you might be wrong and that you might go down the wrong path and find things later that contradict what you thought you knew, but that's the fun of it. Like that's the messy stuff that I really enjoy about. Yeah, and ultimately the, the journey is about your self-knowledge and you can't teach that to someone else. Well, no. Um, and uh, you Just teaching a sort of bunch of possible <laughs> ways that you that might help other people. Might help other might. people. And, you know, some of this stuff might not work for someone else, but, and, you know, I've tried all variations of different, not like... Um, you know, systems of belief or anything like that, but just different ways of thinking about my own life. And mm. and I just had to think deeply about what has been useful to me. And to be perfectly honest, it's been um, science, it's been animals, um, it's been kind of kindness and, and being light of spirit, I guess, and, and not happy. Happy is the wrong word because you don't get to choose happiness necessarily. You find yourself in it. But like all of the things that might build that foundation in my life, uh, you know, I've always been at my best when I get to be funny and and think kind of absurdly about the conditions I found myself in because sometimes that's the only option we had <laughs> yeah. was to laugh. That um, happiness aspect, I, I really thought, I've never heard that articulated in that particular way that you do. I think it's in the kindness chapter about um, happiness is a useless goal mm -hmm. and that, because I have always thought, you know, I did philosophy 101 at uni and yeah. it, it seems to be the, you know, the goal of most sort of moral systems is, yes. to, is to seek <laughs> happiness. But I think you quite rightly sort of articulated in this way that's like, it's not, a, it's not something you can do. No. It's a state that you might attain if you're lucky. Yeah. And it's not something that you can, uh, it's, it's not a piece of Ikea furniture, like you don't have instructions for it. Um, and, and they might change on any given day anyway, even if they did exist. But I was talking to someone who's very successful recently. I won't name any names, but this person has experienced incredible success in the last couple of years. Um, just like phenomenal amounts from a really low base. Like they had just a shit life basically. And they were saying, you know, I just don't feel like it's enough. And I'm like, oh my God, I get that as well. <laughs> um, because like, you know, no matter what level you attain, you always think there's something more. And the thing that really anchors me is reminding myself and constantly looking at the world through the eyes of my eight-year-old self. Like I am obsessed with going and going, hey, what would eight-year-old Rick think of this? Um, because his mind would be absolutely blown. Um, and it would have been 10 years ago as well. He would be like, wow, you're working as a cadet journalist. You would never would have thought that would happen. And now I'm working as um, a senior journalist and I've got books published and I've got amazing friends who are smart and, and lovely and kind. And... None of those things you can – you can't wake up on any given day and, and say that today is the day I'm happy because you might not be. And and that fracture of expectation versus reality is what actually creates sadness. Um, mm. 
And sometimes sometimes you are just sad and you need to live in that moment because that's what colours in the edges of all the other stuff, right? Yeah. It was it's just a it's a very interesting sort of thing to wrangle with, I think. I'm still um, wrangling with it, but yeah. yeah. I don't think there's a there's not an end point. No, and I um, and I and I do try to say that very deliberately in the book as well. It's like I don't think that this is a blueprint. Um, it, the only thing it, it kind of is for me at least is um, a, a written record of my thinking about the world when I'm in a relatively good place. Um, and I actually found my, this sounds so kind of wanky, but I found myself reading it back at the end of 2020 when I did have another episode of trauma and kind of reading back through like my own version of thinking when I was in a really rocky place and I felt at the time that it kind of ameliorated some of the worst aspects of what I was going through. Um, it didn't make it painful. It didn't make it pain-free. Um, it didn't make it go away, but it allowed me to kind of anchor myself in a much more stable position than I have been able to in the past, mm. which was a remarkable thing. And I don't know whether that's because the writing was actually any good or because I was actually just forcing myself to think about the same concepts that I otherwise probably wouldn't got distracted it by. makes sense though based on uh, some of the stuff you talk about and how consciousness and language sort of tie in together and how that can just sort of be a direct line into some of those feelings sometimes you can't change what you don't name mm. and you can't understand or articulate what you don't have language for like um i quote wittgenstein a bunch of times but you know the borders of my language are the borders of my world um, and I'm not saying that if you think happy thoughts or say nice things in your head, then depression goes away or you get rid of complex trauma. You don't. Um, but in any given moment, um, there are kind of scales of the damage that your mind can do to you. And because the mind is your entire reality. Um, I've been saying this a lot of heaps, um, but a lot heaps recently. <laughs> I told you when I got here that I can't speak properly today. <laughs> um, but I've been, you know, unless you've had open like cranial surgery, um, your brain has never seen the outside world and yet it tells you literally everything about what that world looks like, the colour, the smell, the feel, the fact that I'm here now talking to you. Um, you haven't seen me at all. <laughs> it's just electrical signals. Mm. And so that when you realise that that lump of flesh, which weighs about three kilograms, is doing all of that, then you must understand and you must, I think, realise that it actually does have the power, if you put words into it, that reframe the way you're thinking um, or to articulate, you know, happiness or kindness or just be kind to other people, that, then that has a material effect on, on the processing that's happening behind the scenes. Yeah, and that behind the scenes process, one of the parts I really love the most and maybe it is a bit undergrad of me to love it and yeah. you sort of give a proviso <laughs> of it at the beginning of the consciousness part about... That's my favourite chapter, by uh, the way. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> I, loved, I loved it. I've been talking about that chapter since I read it to everyone. I was like, I'm like, oh God, maybe people are going to think it's silly or no, too dense, it. but I'm like... I, just... I, don't know what pe I don't know what other people like, well, exactly. but I loved it. So. Yeah, okay, that's good. <laughs> but um, especially the sort of this idea, which I've read elsewhere, but you articulate it very well in a very short um, Yes, chapter. I haven't done any new research on consciousness. No, no, yet. but you pull out a lot of interesting things together about um, how sort of disconnected our consciousness is with, you know, our what we actually do. Yes. <laughs> uh, and our control over our mind is to some extent, and what we do is somewhat illusory. And how, particularly when it comes to mental health, that... Um, 
you know, the, the way those two things interact can be quite destructive if you think that you can just control your own mind. And, and, yeah. and people, you know, people who haven't experienced any mental health issues or just lack empathy will say to people, you know, we'll just get over it or stop being, stop worrying. You it's, know, it's the classic one. It's quite crazy. And I didn't put it in this book because it's been quoted everywhere a million times. But it is one of the most fascinating things in the world. But And I can't remember all the details. It was in the 60s or something like that. But this man, a very normal man in America got a gun and he went to a clock tower at a university and he just started killing people. And he didn't know what was wrong with him, but he had a hunch. He said, there's something wrong with my brain. Um, and he actually left a note because he was shot dead by the police. And he actually left a note going, please cut open my skull and find out what was wrong with me. And so they did. And he had a massive tumour growing that was pressing on the part of the brain um, that kind of changes the way that you act um, or your responses to normal um, inputs. And so this just absolutely normal human being, he had a lovely wife and kids, I think, from memory, um, loved his family, he was a hard worker, just snapped because of this tumour. And mm. and so it, and to me that blows my mind, right, because I'm like, what do you – it does all kinds of crazy things for free will. Um, I mean, we already know that free will is basically an illusion anyway and that's not just a – undergrad philosophical argument that's what scientists actually think yeah um because of determinism and the way that our particles it's just exhausting to live in the world if you think that way well, well it is and that's why it's, it's <laughs> so not, we all just pretend it's well, exactly <laughs> and it's not worth dwelling on that particular yeah. notion except you know in my case when i was when it came to therapy i realized that giving my trauma a narrative and putting it in words what had happened to me was so useful in identifying the problem um, and then getting um, some initial early therapy to at least kind of understand the parameters of it I guess but at a certain point I ran up against as I say in the book I ran up against my own subconscious um, because it particularly with trauma it wasn't um, the fact that I didn't know what had happened um, that was doing all the damage it was the fact that my brain knew perfectly well what had happened and it had prepared specifically um, at the age of seven for this to happen again and again and again and it was expecting it and that's why it was going haywire and so at that point at the, at the point of automation in the brain, it's not actually useful anymore to describe the problem. You need to just actually fix it. And that goes well beyond language, unfortunately. Mm. And you, the, the therapy, the, um, what was it? Neurofeedback, Neurofeedback yes. I <laughs> loved that. I don't know how... I, I, look, because of COVID-19, <laughs> I couldn't finish it, which is very annoying. But the only reason I did it was because I, I was talking to a trauma th um, specialist um, for a story I was working on. He works with Headspace. He's like the head trauma guy. And he was saying neurofeedback's the only thing that works on developmental trauma, precisely because of that reason, because it gets to the mechanics of the brain that we don't control um, because they're all happening in the background and because it tries to rewire the brain without you being aware of what's going on, that's why it's so effective. And so I went on this kind of magical mystery tour, I guess, of neurofeedback, which is – it's such a bizarre experience can you describe a little bit for people yeah. what, what you actually do yes so you go you, you go for a big session to start off with where they they put all these electrodes um on your skull um so they put like a whole bunch um kind of in my in between my hair follicles um at the back on the, my double crown and then they put these two big sensors there's a lot of gel involved which is why it had to stop during covid and they put them they kind of rub the gel on your earlobes and they put more sensors there and essentially what is happening is they're looking for your um, brain waves. And there's four in particular, but there's all different types of ways they interact. And uh, so it's like alpha, um, beta, I think, uh, delta and gamma from memory. 
and they're looking for the way these uh, brain waves are, whether they're in normal range or not, and whether they're in normal range in you know one hemisphere or the other, or in different parts that control different functions of your body. And so what they do is they take a baseline reading and they do a whole kind of intake questionnaire about <clears throat> you know what you're like in your day-to-day life, almost like a therapist session to you know get the background. Um, and then they take you in for the actual sessions where they try to rewire you. And so they, they hook you up all over again. And in the first instance, I played Pac-Man. And the thing that was most interesting to me is that the therapist says, you think you're going to be able to control the Pac-Man, but you can't. And I'm like, but who else is in the room? <laughs> I'm like, as far as I can see, it's just me. And they're like, your brain has to do the work. Like, you can't make it do anything. So what happens is Pac-Man's on the screen. You're watching a screen. You're all hooked up. And you want to make Pac-Man move and gobble up all the, the lollies or whatever it is that he's eating. And if your brain waves are not within the normal range, you get penalised. And that's when he stops and he freezes and the screen goes black. And so I'm trying to, like, it's so discombobulated to to explain it even. What is happening is that your brain, without you being present consciously, understands intuitively that it wants to get rewarded and it works out very quickly that the way to do that, the way to not get the black screen and the the beeping noise is to keep the Pac-Man going. And eventually it realises that there are parameters that the therapist has set saying the delta wave needs to be within this uh, wavelength. And so over time, theoretically, your brain will actually learn of its own volition. How to win Pac-Man. How to win Pac-Man. And I'm just sitting there like an idiot because I literally, I tried all different things. I tried ways to control it, thinking that I, you know, somehow I could take over my subconscious mind. I can't. Um, That won't surprise you having met me today because (laughs) I could, I wouldn't have been such an idiot. Um, But, and that's, that's neurofeedback. And you do that, you know, for 40 sessions. It was it's amazing to think about how that works and it's how it, and how it ties <laughs> into everything else that you talk about. You know, the idea of free will being this. Yeah, so we may not be consciously in control of our bodies, but our bodies still react to stimulus. Yes, you know, yes. And our brain still forms pathways to part. And it's literally, on what it's, literally the problem with trauma is mm. that um, because it is. Um, it's an automatic process because back in the days when we were Neanderthals or Homo, you know, um, living 45, 50,000 years ago in caves, it really was useful for your brain to take control of a fight or flight response because you didn't want to get eaten um, and you needed to be hypervigilant about, you know, getting stabbed by a woolly mammoth tusk or, um, or you know, falling down a ravine while you're hunting. And so the, it's, it's, it's like breathing in that sense. Like you, you don't want to be concentrating on that stuff all the time. And if there really are dangers everywhere, you want your brain to be aware. Um, it's just that suddenly, um, particularly in the developed world, we kind of entered this territory where intellectually we've moved beyond that, but the oldest parts of our brain haven't. And they think they're trying to help. Mm, that all really made sense to me possibly even for the first time reading the book, I think. That's what I was going where for, Where I right? felt like <laughs> it was various things that I've read over the years about stuff that had nothing to do with mental health or trauma yep. sort of coagulated into this thing that sort of made sense to me. And it, it was very, very moving um, and interesting. Um, but I don't feel like I could just keep talking <laughs> to you about it. <laughs> but let's talk a bit about um, masculinity because yes. I, I think <laughs> it's something that I, I – especially toxic masculinity, I think mm-hmm. is – in the news, I've it's been heard. around. Um, and your book is partially about how that masculinity sort of damages 
boys, especially little boys. Which... Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's such a disease because uh, I mean the point I'm making in in that chapter in particular, and this isn't a new point, but broken masculinity, broken ways of intuiting what it's like to be a man, are more harmful to men uh, than even. Uh, no, let me say that another way. <laughs> that they're violent towards women. Um, they, they produce violence towards women and this kind of hatred of feminine forms. Um, but it is just as damaging to the whole project of being a man, to have to live within these constraints. Um, and they are, you know, so what happens when you, when you want to talk about feminism, right, is men's rights groups will be like, but what about the men? It's like today's International mm. Women's Day. And I guarantee you... There will be people on Twitter right now going, when's International Men's Day? Every other day. Um, <clears throat> Even though there is one there and is no one, one cares. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why would we care? It's like, what? We're celebrating the power structures we built? Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the problem with those men's rights groups is that they will come and accurately quote some of the data back and say, but men are more highly represented in suicides. Um, we die more in workplace accidents. Um, and we're the subject and target of more violence than women. And that is true because mm. it's committed by other men. Yep. And the reason the vast majority of all of those things are the way they are, particularly the violence against men committed by other men, is because they're attacking weakness or what they perceive to be weakness. Um, so if you're... Not just, I, I told this story today, but I had a friend who was gay bashed essentially, even though he's straight, because he was wearing a woman's scarf in Wollongong. And so these concept of, concepts of what it takes to be a man are policed so rigorously by men. And, and they are not afraid of women because they outpower them. But what they are afraid of is other men thinking that they're weak. And so we've got this whole poisonous system that is still. Um, shored up by this idea that they must look, feel, act and, and speak a certain way. When really what my experience with men of all um, sexualities and, and, you know, kind of interests and curiosities has been is that they, they just want to be loved. <laughs> mm. Like they just want to hug their mates. They want to have mates and they want to have them for the rest of their life that they can call them up and talk to them about stuff that's going wrong. But we are taught not to do any of those things and it's so dangerous. And it's so upsetting you you see it everywhere, right? And it feels, I mean, you describe it, I think, quoting someone else who I can't recall, um, as a cage. Yes. And I think yeah. that... Ocean Vuong, the, yeah, the poet, yeah. That was a fantastic, that, that quote. Oh, God. When I read it that in his book, I just cried. Like, it was just... The quote specifically is like, you know, um, to be an American boy um, is... no. To be uh, an American boy is to be caged, but to be an American boy with a gun is to move from one side of the cage to the other. Yep. Um, it's not freedom, um, and we are all kept in these kind of structures by ourselves. Yeah. We built the cages. Yeah, we built the cages. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's like Jurassic Park if it was run by other dinosaurs. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it feels that, and I think it is something that I don't think men talk about enough, and they don't engage with the project of feminism enough where it, in that it will help us as much as it helps and, and the, anyone yeah, else exactly perhaps more exactly. and and I, I i've never understood that and it is it's i don't think most men have really wrangled with how awful most of us are brought up it's a, it's a <laughs> difficult thing to comprehend because it just at the back of your existence there is this idea that has been drilled into you that women are weak and that to imitate their form um, through the perception of what it would be to be a woman, i.e. to be domestic, um, noting on the record that these are all false perceptions, by mm. the way, but to be domestic, to be feminine, 
um, to um, this is why I say homophobia is just as dangerous for straight men as it is for gay men because um, that is predicated, as Jess Hill so rightly points out in her book, See What You Made Me Do, on the idea that men bash other gay men because they're feminine, because of that original revulsion towards the feminine form. Um, and lesbians are okay if they're performing for men's sexual gratification, but not if they're, quote-unquote, um, a tomboy or a dyke. Mm. Um, or excluding. If they, excluding men, because that shows to men that they don't need them, and that's where the anger gets provoked. Mm. Um, and if you try to hit on a lesbian as a straight man and they tell you to fuck off, that's when the rage comes. Yeah, and it's that sense to me of... I've talked about this with various people in my life about this sense that, um, and again, I should predicate this with, you know, this is within the bubble of maybe more woke liberal <laughs> life, but it does feel like women and, and you know, and girls have a, a more varied range of things that they can, how they can be in the world. Yes. Whereas boys have a specific thing that they're supposed to do. And if they don't do it, Punishment is very harsh. And the thing is, um, I think that's true. And the thing is, um, but it's, it's more complicated still because obviously there are, um, there are many things that women are encouraged to do and are allowed to be except independent, um, except, yes. um, you know, they're allowed to be sexual beings but only for um, the men who think they own or control them. And so there are all of those strictures and, and kind of um, controls put in place by men, but it's not... And where it is women controlling other women, it's, it's because of that ingrained patriarchy mm. where they're, um, they've taken on the kind of principles, I guess, of that, that male structure. But men police themselves more than anything else because... And each other. And each other. Because they know um, that that's the system they created, right? And, and the danger for them as they see it. And, I, you know, I am a man, so, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not pontificating saying that the problem is out there. It's our problem. Um, but I have seen the kind of the sadness, I guess, in men as they get older, straight men who are married, and there's studies on this, I quote them in the book, where, you know, the social life of men shrinks when they get older to the point where they only really have their wife. Um, and if they've got close friends, they don't talk to them about stuff. They'll go to the pub with them, but they don't have anyone else they can confide in. And it breaks um, their wife, because the wife has still has a, a larger social circle and mm. sees other people outside of her immediate family and her husband, um, but this bloke doesn't have anything, and 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 that I find devastating. Mm. Um, and it's not as an excuse for any of this behaviour about violence and 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 abuse, um, but you do need to understand it. And I mean, if that isn't a big enough kick up the ass for men. To fix it for themselves, I don't know what is. Yeah, like it's self-interest. It, it, it's do not it. in any way uh, to try and say that other people aren't hurting more. No, or no. that this isn't obviously disadvantaging women. Yes, in, in most ways, um, much worse. Who, who fear for their lives? <laughs> yeah, it's that we can all work together to make it better for everybody. But it doesn't feel like that because like, you get happening. it all the time, right? And people go, "No, you're better." Like you know, I, I, I was tweeting something about female violence the other day. And someone was like, yes, but I do think that there is this kind of we need to worry about boys. And it's like it's not a competition. Mm. Um, but also I don't trust those people who want to do the what about thing. Mm. Um, they only ever mention this stuff in opposition to female talk of female violence and abuse. Um, stop If you are a men's rights activist, stop going out there and going, but what about men? What about men in response to feminists who are trying to sort out, you know, their own fearful lives and 
things that have been made that way because of men. Like, have discussions about, well, what is it actually that is the problem here? It's other men. We are the problem. Yeah, it's not advocating for what you actually believe in, not what you're against, yes. using some yes. specious why it, why, argument. Why are men killing themselves by suicide? Because they can't talk. That's why. I mean, they're not, they're not, um, they're not being vulnerable, for want of a better word. Mm. Um, they're not being uh, emotionally um, available to anyone who loves them. And because they can't do that, um, they lose close contact throughout their life. And as they get older, they get sad, depressed, isolated. Um, and then they kill themselves. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's devastating, but it's really... It's it, horrific. It, it, it feels like a deep truth of this book, really. That you, It's not just that not just in the masculinity chapter, but throughout this idea of vulnerability being something that is, well, to quote you back to yourself, oh, my fa- one of my favourite lines <laughs> in the book actually was right near the end where you talk about, um, I think, talking about skyscrapers, that vulnerability mm. is a design feature that allows us to confuse the wind. I love that. It's a beautiful line. I'm glad you liked that line. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about what you meant by that? Well, yeah, I mean, so it's like it's 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 it's... It's common, um, in fact, it's vital in engineering um, to build skyscrapers that move with the elements. Otherwise, they just snap in half um, when you get like a strong cyclone. Um, or imagine when Cyclone Sandy hit New York, if they didn't build skyscrapers to sway, um, they would have just fallen over. Um, the Burj um, Dubai, you know, one, not quite one kilometre tall, but it moves two metres, I think, at the top <clears throat> in either direction. And that is strength. Like the strength is to move with the elements, right? And and I mean, I'm talking now in your kind of personal life. Um, vulnerability is is not about running away from problems or scary things. It's about standing there and accepting uh, the borders of what those problems look like, and then confusing the wind. <laughs> it's it's about um, remaining uh, present, I think, and and open because. I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. I mean, I've, got, I've had anxiety my whole life, right? And always in hindsight, I realised that the thing I was anxious about wasn't scary at all. Some things are genuinely scary, but it's usually not the things I have anxiety about. And we have anxiety about being vulner- vulnerable because, you know, evolutionarily speaking, you turn over and you show your belly to the world and someone can come along with a big sharp claw and cut you open and disembowel you. Not ideal. Um, not great for a Monday. Um, we don't <laughs> want that. Um, but it works um, emotionally as well. In fact, there's a, a part of the brain called the anterior insula, which regulates disgust. And um, I didn't put this in the book, but I find it fascinating. It regulates disgust and it's why um, when you see something that makes you want to vomit, um, there is only one part of the brain that regulates that. And it's the same for physical things that make you want to vomit, but also moral disgust. Mm. So like in like hard right Christians, for example, if they find something like homosexuality disgusting, um, it's the same part of the brain that tells them that rotten chicken is disgusting. Um, and the reason I'm telling you all of these things is because, you know, there is we, there's a biological basis for all of these things, but it doesn't have to be that way. And vulnerability to me is about learning to differentiate the two, um, learning that it's not scary to do so. And, in fact, my life has never been better because I used to be like those other men we were just talking about. You know, I was gay, but I hated myself. Um, I didn't want to be around other gay men um, because my father hated gay men and he hated me <laughs> and then I was becoming like him. And what a poisonous way to live. And, and I've never been um, happier. And, again, it's not something I thought I could achieve on purpose, but here I am. 
Um, and I've got really, uh, I have really shitty days <laughs> still, but I have never been more comfortable, I guess, in the knowledge that in the long run, um, I've got one up on the world. Mm. Like that's what it feels like. It's like I might, it's, this is a terrible analogy I'm about to make, but it's like the stock market. Like if you're going to invest, invest for the 10-year, 20-year horizon um, because if you put your money in and then take it out after a week, you're almost certain to lose it um, or you might, might, not, might not make that much money. And it's the same with your emotions. Like if you get sad and be like, well, blow the whole project up, I'm not going to try and work on myself and, and find all of these things and be vulnerable because I had a bad day, um, well, then you're not going to reap the rewards. Yeah, that really makes sense. Oh, thank God. <laughs> no, it does. Maybe I should try writing. This is, yeah. <laughs> this is, um, I, I, I could honestly keep talking to you about this for well, a, yes, now that a I've long got my time. I've got, so many, <laughs> I've got so many notes that I didn't get a chance to talk to you about. I keep rambling, I'm sorry. So we'll have to do a sequel at some point. But <laughs> I'll look, yeah. um, I just thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to me. Um, it's such a beautifully written book. It's really funny. It's really sincere and moving. And I personally loved reading it and i'm sure that you listener will also enjoy reading it so um with thank you so much Rick, for coming and i'll, I'll re recommend you could buy my year of living vulnerable by rick morton from booktopia.com.au thanks so much for joining us Joel, you're a lovely man thank you <laughs>